0: Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, From the Lighthouse podcast. Um, I'm Shuming Tio, and today we're going to talk about what it means for queer readers to read queer young adult romance. So let me introduce um, our guests, or I'll let them introduce themselves rather.
1: Hi, I'm Tia Miller. Um, I'm in my first year of a Master's of Research with a discipline in
2: literature. Hi, I'm Courtney Boulay. in my fourth year um, of my Bachelor of Arts majoring in English and minoring in Anthropology. Okay, so,
0: um, so this was a discussion that we developed in the course of um, a, um, a, an internship unit for English literature at Macquarie University. And we became really, really interested in talking about queer readers um, because we, um, we read a couple of queer novels. Um, it was Rhiannon Wilde's Henry Hamlet's Heart and Sophie Gonzalez's Perfect on Paper. And then, um, and and we thought it would be fun, um, and also very, uh, you know, important and significant, uh, just to have queer readers uh, reflecting on the whole process of engaging in queer culture, representations of young people in queer culture. Okay, so um, Tia and Courtney, tell us a little bit about your uh, about your background, um, your experiences, um, um, I guess, uh, as part of the queer community.
1: Yeah, well, I think. For me, I was sort of consuming queer content before I actually kind of knew that I was queer or accepted that I was queer. Like, it was a big part. I like same for Courtney. Like, growing mm-hmm. up, we both consumed a lot of if the content wasn't queer, the audiences kind of made it queer. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of fan fiction. Um, and it was majority online and not in sort of mainstream media. It was more like Tumblr, sites like that where it's a bit more alternative, um, Yeah, there was a lot of, (laughs) I think we both said, Supernatural. Yeah. (laughs) We were really into Supernatural, One Direction, um, which on their own are not queer. But um, I think a lot of young sort of tweens like us were sort of desperate for content. And so you'd read into a lot of things um, and you'd sort of create your own queer versions of this content, like a lot of fan fiction and things like that.
2: Um, Yeah, I think personally, like, Um, and the sort of um, the people who were I was interacting with in my real life none of them were queer Mm. Um, and so I really had to go to those online spaces yes even before I knew that I was a part of the community um, you had to go to those spaces in order to interact with queer content at all and other queer people Mm. Um, and so yes in making things like you know Supernatural um, or Sherlock any of those sorts of like TV shows or you know all of those things making them queer was a way for us to be able to connect with each other in a way that we weren't able to do in real life. Mm.
1: Yeah it's and I think also around the time it was like probably early 2010s it was pretty normal and acceptable for shows and sort of even like bands like One Direction, there was an element of queer baiting that everybody was sort of aware of. Mm-hmm. So like the shows sort of knew what they were doing because they had this huge fan group of like young teenage girls who were like sort of desperate for that content and they would feed into it, but never to the extent where you would get any actual representation. So it's like a thing where you sort of both sides knew what was going on, but neither side, yeah, like they, they weren't willing to do anything legitimate about it. So we mm-hmm. sort of had to do it ourselves and that was sort of a way to discover our identity online I guess.
2: Yes which is why um, specifically you know reading Queer YA nowadays um, there is like an element of such rich validation Mm -hmm. for being able to actually read something that has gone through all of the processes um, you know, made its way up to being actually published and then to be actually sold, um, you know, in mainstream stores, like even like a big W, mm. you know, stuff like that, places like that where it's really easily accessible for anybody to grab those books. That's why I think, like, you know, like it's really important that we have those stories now um, and, you know, they're actually in book form they're not just like mm. online. Yeah, maybe it's just because we're, like, little book
1: notes as well. But there's something so validating seeing, <laughs> yeah. like, a physical book. Like, it's not yes. something a 14-year-old's online has read it. Like, it's mm-hmm. something that's gone through, yes. like, a major publishing system. Um, and also, like... Sometimes on like New York Times bestseller list. Like that sort yeah. of external validation mm-hmm. does mm-hmm. mean something. Like it sort of makes you feel valid. Like it doesn't make, you don't feel stupid
2: for enjoying <laughs> like representation, I guess. Yes, exactly. And you aren't like sequestered into just being mm-hmm. like a little teen. Yeah, like hiding like, in your yes, room, like exactly, hoping nobody online. sees your phone screen, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. refreshing your internet history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's not like it's not something you have to be afraid of or yeah. worried about people seeing because it's, to mainstream now. Yeah. Um, and it's normal and it's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Okay. Um, So, uh, Courtney, you know, um, I think before we talk about queer YA and all that, can you um, explain to us how you're using the term queer? Um, What is your definition of it? And then before we look at YA representations of it as well, um, you know, um, you've talked about, I guess, um, social media on Tumblr, Twitter and TikTok and all of that. Mm. What are the representations of the queer community like? So define it, uh, you know, define queer for us, and then uh, and then tell us what the representations were like. Um, I guess uh, that are different, I guess, from from queer YA.
2: Yes. Um. So personally, um, the way that I use the word queer is, um, just as an umbrella term. So rather than you know having to whip out the LGBTQIA plus, um, you know, you can just say queer, and it's to me, um, you know, the way of being able to sort of, like, encompass everything. So there are a lot of different um, micro-labels within um, the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, And so to be able to have just one word that sort of encompasses everybody, so everybody can feel included, we're all a part of the same group, you know, all under the same bracket um, of just being queer. So that's how, yes, that's how I use it. Um, And I feel like there's a lot of... um, like comfort and there's a lot of safety in using that too because you don't have to divulge anything. It's just, you know, saying, yes, I belong. I'm a part of this group. Um, And so, yes, um, I was thinking, not thinking, um, I've seen a couple of people um, unhappy or maybe just um, not really knowing how to interact with the way that academic um, communities and just academia in general uses the word queer um, just to, yes, like I'm using it now as an umbrella term. Um, but at the same time, uh, well, no, in that, in that regard, it's specifically because um, not, not for so much recent generations, but for older generations, we're hearing the word queer as a slur. Um, so that's how they're interacting with it, with the history of like violence and negativity and all of those sorts of things. Um, but I think it's possible for the modern generation, <laughs> uh, you know, for the younger generation of queer people to be able to use this word because, like I said, it, there's a lot of comfort, there's a lot of safety and there's a lot of validation in just being able to belong without having to figure yourself out entirely. Um, so I think, you know, as long as um, the people who are using it in academia are using it with respect and using it with that sort of knowledge um, and not treating it like just another, you know, another word to throw out um, in a sort of um Just like an othering Mm -hmm. sort of way, Mm -hmm. so as long as they're treating it sort of the way that the community is using it, I think that's I think it's fine. Okay, (laughs) I I I find that surprising,
0: I guess, or interesting Mm -hmm. because um, I think the popularization of it does stem from academia, mm, Yeah. right, mm. um, and the way in which they uh, they have theorised, like queer theory yeah. uh, from the 90s onwards has been so big and, you know, has been really pushing, um you know, um, inclusion and acceptance, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, uh, 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 which is not to say that you're wrong, but just to say that it's interesting that there is this perception that the academic usage of it might not be altogether friendly, <laughs> right? So um yes. <laughs> maybe we've got some PR to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay. So um, all right. Um, so I guess you know Tia and Courtney, just tell us about what you like about the representation of um, the queer community on social media and the things that you find disturbing then.
1: I think it's changed a lot mm-hmm. and over a relatively short period of time. I think when we were younger, it was usually you'd have like one queer character in a show or a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tended to be pretty stereotypical. It was a lot of, like, the gay best friend and they never, they were supporting characters. So they never so got this their is own. So
0: this is in fiction? Yeah, in fiction. Yeah.
1: So, like, it definitely, there was a lack of autonomy, I think, in a lot of, like, representations, whereas now, and I think partly because of social media, um, communities that might not have typically been able to get into the mainstream have sort of control over their own voice and their own platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's... Yeah, it's been really great. I think you get a lot more diversity because it's mm-hmm. not, you know, you don't have to come up through a traditional media paths. Anybody can create like a TikTok. Anybody can go online mm-hmm. and sort of build a following and build a community mm-hmm. of like-minded people. Um, and there's, yeah, I think there's just a lot more opportunities there for
2: authentic representation, mm-hmm. which is nice to see. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it's interesting, um, yes, like in online spaces, I think, well, for me and... Uh, maybe if it's here as well but it's sort of like the only like way that you interact with people online like I mean to say like all most people um in the communities that I am in are queer people yeah so you'll find each other it's like yeah Yeah, yes a little congregation (laughs) um so I think there's a lot of um like you see a lot of Um, help I guess from older queer people to younger queer people there's a lot especially on TikTok I've seen Mm. um, yes a lot of more experienced queer people sort of reaching out and being like like here is you know the way that you would interact with queer people in real life here's Mm -hmm. the way that you know you can navigate these pathways um, and sort of you know come to yeah, Understand I think there's,
1: there's like a huge lack of education when you're younger of like what it means to be queer, yeah. like how do you navigate healthy relationships when you're queer? Yeah. Like, even just basic things like sex ed aren't discussed, or at least weren't when I went to my private Catholic girl school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think, yeah, there definitely is that sort of generational element, which is really lovely of older queer people using their experiences and teaching younger generations of queer people sort of how to engage in the world and how to come into their identities I guess easier and faster than they did Mm -hmm. which is nice it's not like a bitterness thing of oh you guys have it so easy these days it's very much thank god you do because it wasn't great for us and like I'm here to help that process Yeah, I think it's a a wonderful thing
2: yes there's a lot of like healthy support yeah um, and very easy ways to build healthy support networks Mm -hmm. by having that interaction um, and ease of accessibility by being able to communicate with other queer people online. Yeah,
0: and that's one of the things that the two YA novels are doing, right, the, 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 the novels we're <laughs> yes. going to discuss, they uh, that they do represent, I think, um, quite strongly, particularly Sophie Gonzalez's um, generational support.
1: Yeah. Right,
0: so let's turn then um, to talking about YA fiction. But Antea, um, I do did find that point that you made about social media positively mm. impacting queer YA fiction, um, very, very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, the two of you have done quite a bit of work on um, queer YA fiction, so tell us about it then.
1: Yeah, well, I thought I found it really interesting during the process of sort of researching our first podcast just how young the genre is. Um, we sort of discovered the first queer YA novel wasn't published until 1969. Um, and, yeah, I think historically it is also a genre that hasn't been particularly optimistic. Um, If queer way novels were allowed to be published, they sort of had to act as like a deterrent almost. So there was, it was sort of showing young queer kids, here's what's going to happen if you are queer. Like You're going to get disowned, you're going to be miserable. There's going to be a lot of violence in your life. um, A lot of family disturbance, like a lack of acceptance basically. Um, And it's, yeah, I think, it's definitely starting to change, which is really nice. And, I, yeah, I do think, like, the pop, like, social media plays a big part of that. I think there's a very specific, like, road from fan fiction writers to, like, published authors. Mm-hmm. A lot of queer people who grew up sort of creating their own representation are now in positions to start writing the stories that they wish they sort of had when they were younger, um, which I think is definitely helping things. But, yeah, it's definitely not always been the most optimistic of genres for young people.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, I think when you, you know, those first sort of queer way and novels, um, they really had to be focused in tragedy, in horror, in the sphere, mm-hmm. um, like Tia said, because those people, you weren't allowed to be queer in real life. Queer um, and happy, yeah. Yes you, <laughs> yes, you weren't allowed to be queer and happy. You weren't allowed to have your happy ending um, and so you weren't allowed to show that either. Um, and I think something that was, is also interesting to consider is the fact that probably there weren't many actual queer writers writing queer way stories. Yeah. Um, so there's a huge lack of agency and voice for actual queer people within those stories to tell actual depictions of queer life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you really had just like an outsider perspective um, giving you tragedy yeah. <laughs> because that's the way that you had to be seen in society. Um, And especially I think probably also there was the element of, yes, to get it published, Mm -hmm. you couldn't be shown promoting queerness. Mm -hmm. So, Even historically, um,
1: like I'm thinking E.M. Foster's novel Maurice. Yes. was written in like the 20s and he Mm -hmm. specifically chose to wait until after his death in the 70s to publish it because he found it imperative to give that story a happy ending Mm -hmm. and he knew if he published it when he was alive, he'd get thrown in jail. So there's... There was yes. laws in place for a lot yeah. of history that meant that a lot of queer novels had to have really tragic endings. Usually gay women would get, like, shipped off to the asylum or they'd have to go back to their heterosexual partners yes. or they'd end up dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of assumed in the community you would read these stories and you'd sort of just dismiss the ending as they kind of had to do that. It's not yeah. You sort of imagine your mm-hmm. own ending off of that Um
0: but thankfully,
1: mm. we don't have
0: to do that anymore. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I think that this, you know, there's a couple of things here that I find really interesting, I guess. I think, um, you know, uh, the, the tragic ending for people who stray outside of um, like social and uh, and sexual mores, um, yeah. you know, conventional social and sexual mores, there's, um, it's always tragic, right? Yeah. This is for straight as well as for queer, right? Mm. Um, so this has traditionally been the lot of women as well. You yeah, think about um, Hardy's Tess of the Dirt, Bills, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter all of these women who stray outside of yeah. what is socially acceptable as far as sexual conduct is concerned, you know, um, they end up um, punished um, and dead, yeah. right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or, in, or Ostracized in some ways. And, um, and it's not just about the punishment though. I think, you know, um, that for writers, social criticism in literature has always um, focused on, um, on trying to create sympathy um, or even beyond sympathy, trying to create empathy for um, you know for for the character to whom uh, terrible injustices are happening, um, they often use the mode of the tragic, right? Because they're trying the writer is trying to stir up pity. Um, and trying to stir outrage at this terrible tragedy that has happened to this person, um, often through circumstances um, that are beyond their control because there is something that is morally corrupt that is wrong with society. So the the mode of the tragic is used to um, to narrate um, stories that are trying to promote social justice, I think. But of course, because quite often the writer is from outside of that community Mm -hmm. or outside of that gender or whatever, they don't write um, as an insider they're writing from from the position of an observer who's sympathetic but not able to see the effects of cumulative yes. <laughs> stories yeah, of yeah. tragedies yeah. befalling yeah. all of these people so i think that's one you know that's one thing to uh, uh, to keep in mind i guess yeah. that we need to acknowledge that what they were trying to, sh- to shine yeah. a spotlight on what they perceived to be an injustice but did not realize you know, accumulatively, the effect that this has on uh, on the uh, the community and how it further ostracizes and um, and positions yeah. as as outsiders these communities. And there's definitely yeah. still a
1: place for those stories as well. It's not to say that if you're a queer person, you've had really hard life, that that experience isn't valid and shouldn't be mm-hmm. shared. There's definitely space for that still. It yes. just shouldn't be the only story young queer people see about themselves. It's about that balance. And I guess, yeah, Absolutely. authenticity as well. Yes. Who's telling those stories and what their intent is, I think matters. Yes,
0: that it should be the full range of human experience, yeah. not just the tragedy, yeah. yeah. But I also think the other thing that you mentioned, um, Atea, uh, uh, about when um, you know the first queer YA um, uh, um, fiction was was published in 69, that's also the, the period of time, you know, from the mid-50s onwards when YA starts to develop. And when you think about what's coming out at that time, the 60s and the 70s, you've got, you know, S. E. Hinton, right? And then yeah. you've got Robert Cormier. um, all of these uh, writers who are tra- who are writing very dark, tragic yeah. books. <laughs> for- so, you know, so so that sort of fits in as well. Yeah. Right. Um, so just thinking about the historical context. Um, so when do you think uh, people started writing, um, I guess, queer positive stories then?
2: Ooh. Yes, um, I think, well, the first ever um, queer way book that I ever actually read, I think it was Will Grayson, Will Grayson. Um, and that was, in, that was in like 2013. So that was when I started to interact with them. Um, and I have to imagine it's probably around that sort of time. So like around the 2010s um, that those stories started to really come out and also proliferate, I guess, um, you know, in the, in the book world. <laughs> um, yeah. Because if they were able to make their way to me, um, I think it was probably even from the school library or something like that. Um, or the public library okay. that I yeah. found those books. So yeah.
0: I'm just interested, I guess, uh, because I'm always interested in the role of librarians and libraries mm-hmm. in disseminating these kinds of stories. How did you find these books? Did somebody recommend it? Did you just come across it on the shelves?
2: Yes, I would have just come across it on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, like, I have um, my oldest sister. Um, she probably had one of, uh, I think Will Grayson, Will Grayson is written with John Green and yeah. somebody else. Um, David, I think it's David something. Anyways, um, so she was reading um, John Green books. So I probably just went to like his name in the library and I was having a look around and I was like, whoa, (laughs) what's this? (laughs) Um, And it really was a rare find, you know. Um, There was, you know, there were a lot of books like, you know, adventures and um, just like regular daily life sort of um, YA novels that I was reading. Um, and, you know, it really is a standout to me mm-hmm. um, that I found this book. Um, so, yes, I have to imagine that it's around sort of that time frame mm-hmm. um, that those stories were sort of developing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe because
1: that is when, like, sort of, Tumblr and internet sites like that sort of really took off as well, that time mm-hmm. period there was, it was like alternative marketing, like sort of passing these books between <laughs> ourselves yeah. almost. Yeah, I think one of my first books was probably Will Grayson, Will Grayson as well. Um, Also, The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. That was a big deal online. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just remember reading it and being like so shocked. Not I was just like whoa okay yeah we can do this I guess the yeah was shocking, though, about it. that it was gay oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I was just so used to like having to read between the lines mm-hmm. and find crumbs of representation in books that when it was explicitly like two boys kissing I was like <gasps>
2: yeah, like whoa. it blew my mind I was like this is
1: the greatest book all of all time like this is put this in like a museum this is incredible like you really yeah, they really stand out because they were so rare at that point. Whereas now I think you go to like any Dimmicks sort and there's usually mm-hmm. the front like the front table's this huge display of like queer YA. it's mm-hmm. become a lot more open and a lot more accessible. And they're kind of everywhere. But at the time it was everybody sort of had the it's like a little starter kit of like the few <laughs> queer novels there were that were popular that everybody had sort of read and obsessed mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay, Um, and so you feel that uh, it's a lot more positive now?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, some of Achilles, it's a retelling of the Iliad, Mm -hmm. doesn't end well for the characters, (laughs) (laughs) notoriously. Um, And, yeah, one of the other first books I read, I think, was literally called They Both Die at the End, Mm -hmm. and they did both die at the end. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Most of the books I read were quite (laughs) negative, and it was kind of written in and it became like people really loved the sadness and I guess yeah like there's something really emotive about it and there is that sympathy you can find in them but it did get to a point where all I was reading were these really really awful tragic mm-hmm. books and it does like get you down a little bit after mm-hmm. a while you do need something a bit refreshing in light and I, yeah I think one of the first like positive queer books I read where there's a happy ending I was
2: quite shocked and I think we still are quite shocked when things end well <laughs> in queer books <laughs> yeah <laughs> You really start to have the expectation that things will just go downhill at some point, Um, you know, the point where you normally think, okay, like, awesome, they're going to overcome the triumph, you know, they're going to triumph. You just sort of as... um, somebody who's read a lot of Queer Way Out and you start to you go like oh it's about to go wrong yes yeah mm-hmm. here we go uh, yes it,
0: it's coming so so this is where I think you know what it was really interesting for me um mm. talking to yeah. both of you about um Henry Handel's yes. um sorry Henry Hamlet's heart yeah. and um and um, perfect on paper because you both expected it <laughs> um, to <Yeah>. end sadly <laughs> whereas I knew that it was that they were YA romances so yeah. I expected the happy ending yeah.
1: <laughs> right. and we're so. kind of talking about that the other day it's I think for us, our norm is for books to end really sadly. Like Henry Hamlet's heart, there's Mm -hmm. a point where Len sort of goes off the grid and he goes missing. And I remember putting the book down and being like, oh, like I don't want to finish it. I just knew or I thought I knew that it was going to end in tragedy like that man was dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And we both sort of had the same reaction. Whereas, yeah, for you, you look sort of comforted because you have these, like, popular romance tropes. Yes. And I think <laughs> the more mainstream and popular queer it gets, the more it starts to align itself with those mm-hmm. tropes because yeah. it's sort of into the mainstream more yeah. than, like, on the outcast. Like, it's sort of becoming more it's sort of bringing itself up to the same level as those yes, yes. regular romance
0: uh, Yes. So that, let's talk about um, YA romance mm. then because um, uh, so these were the two, were, were these the first two YA um, romances that both of you read?
1: Oh, I don't think so, no. You had read no. other YA romances yes, yes.
0: before, but they were just not common enough that you that, that you would expect you, you'd you be reading a YA, um, a queer YA romance. Yeah. Um, okay. So I I think I'm really interested in um, in the romance genre and what it does. I guess for um, for queer communities, queer um, uh, representations um, uh, in light of what you've been talking about in terms of the negativity and everything. Because um, the romance genre is basically, you know, um, uh, uh, set around a, a love story that has an optimistic ending. So when you think about the romance. Um, you know, um, anything can happen. The uh, like really, really uh, terrible events um, can be narrated. Um, they can go through incredible trauma. Um, it can be set in um, in terrible times. Um, you know, I've been doing another project on on a romance novel set during the Holocaust of oh all. <laughs> That's <my God>. another <laughs> another podcast. But uh, yes, but the thing is that um, you know that there is always an optimistic ending at the end. So I think as a whole, one of the things that the romance genre celebrates, I guess, um, is positivity in relationships. It's also very, very sex positive. And of course, the big problem with the romance as a genre is that it has been so incredibly heteronormative. Um, yeah but when I think about the romance you know um, one of the things that the romance is trying to do that um, scholars such as Catherine Roach in her book Happily Ever After mentions is that it is ameliorative it is about a healing of something that is wrong in society so you know um, so society begins um, uh, dysfunctional there are things which are wrong about it but through the course of the romance and through hard work through working at the relationships um you know and because of exceptional qualities of the characters of course <laughs> you know they work through all of this and um and they achieve um you know i think in in uh, in all romances they achieve emotional justice that um, and I, I'm interested in this concept of emotional justice that suffering has you know you've got to have some kind of reward for it at the end mm. right and that's one of the things I think that makes romance fulfilling for romance readers that uh, that you don't read um, this unmitigated narrative of sorrow and suffering and tragedy and then that's it yes right? <laughs> it's like uh, you can go through all of that but there's hope at the you end you need the
1: reward at the yes
0: end. that's yes. right yeah so um, you know so uh, and I think you in recent times, as well, particularly as um, uh, um, as we have moved um, in through digital pu- publishing into increasingly erotic romances, as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, it's not just emotional justice that um, that is being served, but it's also sexual justice. Mm-hmm. Right, Um, and I think that this has been really important for the queer community as well, um, because of those, that historical narrative of tragedy that you've just been telling us about. So, yeah, um, so I think, you know, uh, um, when, so I think that the romance as a genre is really important for Mm. queer communities, (laughs) um, (laughs) simply to narrate, um, uh, you know, to to challenge the genre itself, to challenge the heteronormativity of the genre, but also, um, you know, to normalize, right and to say yeah. that this is part of um, the overall experience and it should be represented mm. yeah um because I, I remember um I think watching a, a video um about uh, about romance um you know writers romance readers and it was like um first of all uh, um with the romance genre starting off, focalizing um, um, th- through the heroine, um, concentrating on the heroine, it was about the heroine receiving justice, mm-hmm. um, and it was like counteracting *Tess of the D'Urbervilles*, *The Scarlet Letter*, yeah. *Lady Chatterley's Lovers*—all those, uh, all, all those stories where women fall in love and then you know terrible things happen yeah. to them. And then later on, it's about also, I think, Len Burrow, who um, is the publisher of Bold Strokes, you know, um, who publishes queer romances um, for for adults, you know, and and she's saying, um, she found it really hard to find um, very healthy sex-positive um, the stories about uh, about lesbians, about, you know, um, yeah. th- which was her background back then. Um, and that was why she started Bold Strokes as well. Yeah. So it's interesting that now, you know, there is this proliferation of um, YA queer fiction, right? So, um, yeah. So let's talk about he- um, Henry Hamlet's Heart and Perfect on Paper then. These are two novels which are written by Australian authors. Um, Henry Hamlet's Heart is set in um, in Brisbane um, and Perfect on Paper by Sophie Gonzalez, who's um, Australian, but it's set um, it, uh, it's, it's set in California, right? So, um, yes, tell us about the novels then.
2: Um, well, Henry Amlet's Heart um, is really like, it's a story um, where Henry has to sort of navigate his way through his final year of high school. Um, and while he's doing that, he's also learning to come to terms with his own sexuality um and also trying to figure out how to interact with his friends and like maintain a healthy friendship um healthy relationship with his parents um and yes to also sort of figure out what it means that he's now in love with his best friend Len Um, so I think uh I think we've said this um amongst ourselves a lot um it's really nice that um Henry Hamlet's Heart and Perfect on Paper 2 the story isn't about them being queer mm. um, the story is about so much more than that and I think that's probably where um the YA you can see a lot of the YA influence on the story so it's not just you know it's not just focused on them like coming out or um you know being like oh my god I'm gay <laughs> or anything like that you know um, it's sort of that's part of it Um, but more than that, it's learning how to, like, just exist um, and how to have your, like, support networks and how to finish high school, how to be happy, how to be successful, how to be healthy, um, all of those sorts of things. And so I think that both of these novels are really good as, like, educational tools. Um, So, you know, it's really lovely to read them um, and to get, you know, the happy endings and all of those kinds of things. But, you know, on a different level, It's a way that young queer people and even older queer people, um, you can interact with these stories um, and be like, well, if you're older, you can sort of be like, wow, I wish that's what I had. Or, you know, it's really lovely to see that this is the future, this is the now even um, of of existing in queer spaces, that these can be represented like this um, in books. And for younger people, um, it's a way to sort of, see the future, you know, see your own future, learn how to um, navigate like being queer or, um, you know, finishing high school, having worries about your future. Um, it's a way, you know, it teaches them how to sort of interact with older queer people, um, which I think we mentioned before. Um, so it's really lovely in both of the books, they both have um, older queer characters um, who are able to offer advice and support and all of those sorts of things for the younger um, main characters who are going through different issues. And all of those issues are not even related to being queer either. So, you know, it's just, its I think they're both really lovely, both very, very heartwarming um, and also really useful um, in order to be able to teach both, yes, younger and older readers um, the ways of navigating queerness but also of navigating just life in general. Hmm. I think that's one of the best things about the
1: YA genre is that it's that sort of coming of age novel and there's so much you can do with that in terms of educating I think Perfect on Paper especially um, is very much almost like a self-help novel there's so much advice coded into that book because our main character Darcy gives writes like advice letters to people yes and so even if she doesn't know what she's doing the whole time because you know the book is about her growth as a person not even just her relationships we've got it's actually well researched as well so you've got advice on like how to ask for consent in relationships um what it means to be asexual or not understand what your sexuality is um like what love languages is and how different people can communicate in relationships and friendships it's really i think the genre can be there for people who don't have people in their lives who can fulfill those roles as elders or mentors so if you don't have any other queer people in your life, you can read a book like this and you do have
0: mm-hmm.
1: the experience that the characters in the book and the queer elders around them get. Um, yeah, I think that's a really great thing to see. Yeah, it's not just being queer. Neither of them struggle with being queer. It's just about building their relationships yes. with the person that they choose to be in love with. Um and I think both are quite different. Darcy imperfect on Paper is very sure of her identity. She knows from the very beginning she's bisexual and she loves that about herself, but she does still have to deal with the internalised biphobia she feels, and that's, I think, a really important thing to sort of represent. And then you've got Henry who um, he never labels it, he loves Len and that's sort of enough for him. And I think that's a really nice thing to see because he is 17, 18. Yes. You don't have to know who you are at that age. And I think that's going back to the beginning. That's why queer can be a really great term because he doesn't have to find that perfect label straight away. He can sort of grow up and work that out as he goes. Yeah.
0: And I think um, we had mentioned before that one of the lovely things about not having to name, you know, sexuality mm. or gender or anything like that is that... Um, in some ways it's sort of um um it it almost makes the love more pure yeah right yes. then then not that len you know does not fall in love with somebody because they have a particular sexuality yeah. it's really all about the person
1: he yeah, says so the nice yes. thing i think it's like you're half of me what else is there yeah like it's it's just they're each other's person and it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. yeah you're not falling in love with them because you're a boy and even when he declares his love it's not i'm in love with this boy it's i'm in love with this person like len is my person Mm -hmm. i think it's really beautiful Mm
0: -hmm. yeah um uh, yeah uh you mentioned the biphobia Mm -hmm. that darcy has internalized i think that was one of the really interesting things about um darcy and perfect on paper um do you you know do you want to talk more about that
1: yeah i think it's i think it's a sign of how far we've come where we can Address nuances within the queer experience. Before it was more like like external, outside pressure. Now we're at the point where you've got a character like Darcy who has this beautiful queer community around her. The queer representation of Perfect on Paper is so, like, natural and lovely. Um, But even within that, it's, I guess, with being bisexual, you've got this thing where you're either not queer enough or you're too queer, depending on what way you're looking at or who's sort of looking at you, and even her friend, is it what's Brooke, Brooke says, um, oh, like, no, you're dating a guy. That must be so much easier because you don't have to deal with, like, when you're in a heterosexual relationship, mm-hmm. you don't have to deal with this stuff. And she said, well, it wouldn't be because I'm not heterosexual. Um, and I think, yeah, it's really important to show that because it's not just being gay or straight. There's nuances mm-hmm. in there and there has to be an open space for everybody. And I think the novel got a little bit of slack online because Darcy does end up with a man or a boy. And they sort of are saying that shouldn't make it a queer novel then if you've got a heterosexual couple, but sort of missing the point. I think it's like really powerful to have her end up with Brougham and she doesn't lose a single part of herself. Brougham never questions that or is mm-hmm. threatened by that or makes any sort of like gross comments about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she can be bisexual and still date
2: a man, that's kind of the point, you know, and I think it's, yeah, I think that's really powerful to see. Yeah, um, and it's interesting too because, yes, really, I think um, the only uh, overt, I guess, biphobia um, that Darcy faces in the novel um, is by Brooke, who is a lesbian. Yes, yes. And so I think that's too showing sort of the nuance in the queer community, how even still um, you might be thinking, like, you know, it's a wonderful, great place, yeah. or you know, it's a, it's a great community. Um, but even within that, there are different opinions, different beliefs, um, and different ways that in- people interact with each other. Um, like, I was, I read something just the other day, um, and it said, um, it was like they did a study, somebody did a study, um, and it was saying that um, lesbian women tend to think lesser of bisexual women more than um, gay men thought lesser of bisexual men Um, and I thought that was really interesting and I had to imagine it's just because of the relationship between or you know the possibility of a relationship between bisexual women and men so you know specifically being so like as a lesbian being so wanting to separate yourself I guess um, from men and from heteronormativity and mm-hmm. all of those sorts of systems and oppressions. Um, so I have to imagine that's why. And I think, I think Paper does a really good job of showing that um, because it is just like an offhand comment that Brooke makes um, and she doesn't even realise in the moment that it's anything bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only later on um, in they go to a Queer and Questioning Club meeting at the school um, and Darcy mentions it as something like, oh, yeah, somebody told me this. Um, and Brooke's, like, a little bit shocked because she's like, mm-hmm. wait, that was me. I said that. Um, and then afterwards she apologises. So it shows. Um, and also, you know, there's a, um, it's just like a, a one-line um, comment of how Darcy's um, father used to think that, you know, whoever she was more attracted to was her sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, in, like, the next line it shows that he's overcome that. Um, And so I think it's really, I think it's really powerful and it's really important to show that how like, you know, there are different ways that people interact and that no matter what, you know, there's always space for growth um, and for understanding as long as you have like a clear communication um, and you're willing to sort of overcome those sorts of biases that you have, you know, any of those kinds of things. Um, I thought it was really lovely the way that mm-hmm. they did that, the way that Brooke was, you know, so quickly able to apologise and I'd be like, no, that's not what I meant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those sorts of things. She just owned it and was like, yeah, sorry. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it's, yeah, it's really powerful and it's really,
1: I guess we'll of say, like, it's healing as well. Like, mm-hmm. if you are a person who's experienced that before, reading somebody specifically say, like, don't gaslight her, what she's talking about is real and it's valid yes. and it's unfair, like, reading those words in, like, a physical text, it can really, like, come a long way with helping yourself sort of understand that yeah I think it's so true there is almost more like biphobia in the queer community than there is outside of it I think especially for women um yeah I think it was a really important topic to sort of grapple with and I think yeah, I think we're both saying if we read this when we were younger, it would have made such a difference to us. <laughs> yeah, I like, wish I could go back in time and give young this yes. book because it would have fixed so many problems so much quicker. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
0: yeah. Yes, and so, I mean, it's a much more realistic in some ways um, depiction of the queer community then. It's yeah. not, I mean, yes. I mean, we read scholarship about how, you know, um, uh, some scholars think that, okay, you know, the positive representations of the queer community um, in YA fiction tends to be a bit utopian or it, um, yeah. you know it, it uh, almost edges into magical realism yeah. because this is not how the world is where everything is warm and everyone mm-hmm. accepts and all of that um, this novel is uh, you know definitely doesn't fit into the, in, in, into those categories because yeah. it does show yeah. lots of lots of difficulties mm-hmm. as well but it's not in the the usual tragic mode Right. Yeah. Um, I think what I liked about both novels were um, were the depiction of the parents, right? Yes, and how um, I guess how complex and individual the parents were, mm. because I think you know uh, reading uh, both novels from the point of view of the of the romance genre. Um, Henry Hamlet's heart is a straight um, you know uh, friends to lovers yes. trope right yes. whereas perfect on paper is um, definitely enemies to lovers yes. so you can see all of those tropes working through but they yeah. are still quite original in the stories that they tell yeah. and it's I think the secondary characters that make uh, that make them original
1: yeah. yeah yeah I think the representation of parents is really important because I think in both sets of novels you have very healthy parent dynamics where even if there are little issues between them, like Darcy and Henry are both able to communicate with their families if there are issues and there's, like, they come from a loving base and there's a lot of support there. And then you also have characters like Len and Broham who have really abusive family dynamics. And I think it's good to show both, I guess, like their magical realism. Not everything's going to be amazing. Not every parent's going to immediately accept their child for who they are, but to show that they're, are safe adults that will, and there are places you can go if you are unsafe at home, I think is a really powerful thing. Um, yeah, I think it's just the way you represent things. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. You can still show the realities of a situation. Even I think we are both saying Henry Hamlet's heart, I think it said in 2008. Yes. Yeah, and a private school, mm-hmm. boys' school. Yeah. And so you could make the argument that it is unrealistic that there isn't a lot more homophobia in that novel. Mm-hmm. But I think it's kind of a great thing to not completely focus on it. It's there in little like casual remarks and it's not, it's something that Henry and Lynn do have to deal with. And Mm -hmm. they do make a point of like, if this is a choice we're going to make to be together, it will be harder for us. But it doesn't dominate the whole novel. You can Mm -hmm. still represent a real experience without making it the be all and end all. You can sort of limit the amount of, sort of like negativity you have in a novel, and keep it realistic, which I think is important. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I probably preferred perfect on paper. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I liked Henry Hamlet's heart, but I felt that, I guess, um, because I knew it was romance, I, I did feel that there was a measure of predictability about right. it. We were
1: both yeah.
0: there, like. Terrified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Terrifying>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you know, Pamela Regis talks about the eight essential elements yes. of, um, the, of the romance, and she talks about, you know, the setting, the meeting, uh, you know, or society defined, the, um, the meeting, the attraction, you know, the barrier. Um, and then um, you know, the declaration, the point of ritual death and then the betrothal um, and that that novel just goes through all of them like systematically <laughs> yes. but I knew the point of ritual death was
1: you know, <laughs> we thought was it was going to be a yeah. actual death <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's no
0: return it yeah. um, was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you know, so it so it was it was a lovely romance. Um, mm. Yeah, and uh, and it was really nice that it was set in, in Brisbane and yeah, it was very nostalgic. yes yeah. yes. But I I I think for me, perfect on paper was um, was very very rich and layered. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways it wasn't just about um, I, I think Cotton you were saying it wasn't it didn't fo- just focus on all the queer issues yes. yeah. um, you know I, um, I absolutely loved um, the, the inclusion of um, Mary Ainsworth and John, John Bowlby's um, the, uh, theory of attachment styles that they had yes. developed in the 50s and 60s and, um, and I thought it was just really, really clever how, um, how Darcy was using the theory of attachment styles to understand people Mm-hmm. Um, but also to narrate what's happening to her, and then to manage her relationships as well. Yeah. Um, I loved the fact that um, she was wrong, um, yeah. you know, quite mm-hmm. often, and Rowan was there to challenge her, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But that she was not shown to be completely wrong. That the that the narrative did validate her understanding because it was mm-hmm. like, hey, she has done her research. She has done a lot of work understanding this, and she's actually on the whole, she's pretty good at it. Ninety-five percent success rate at helping people's relationships <laughs> yeah, you know just she just does um, that's <laughs> right that's right um so I so I really liked that about um uh, about the novel I also thought it was really rich because um, for me it was a very intertextual um Mm -hmm. novel Mm -hmm. um I loved you know the the fact that uh I I think that Darcy's role in it reminded me a lot of um Emma um, a malevolent uh, Emma you know (laughs) Jane Austen's Emma uh, managing relationships trying to matchmake trying to break people up you know so so the the reverse the mirror image of Emma in some ways um there were I think, you know, resonance of Cyrano de Bergerac and how she's advising people to manage their relationships with others. Of course, um, you know, um, uh, Liz Tuchillo, he's uh, just not that into you, is referenced Mm -hmm. quite a lot. Um, but I also thought it was really interesting how it was, uh, you know, she combined the epistolary novel in all of the letter writing mm-hmm. with narrative or first person narrative. And then she brought in um, the case study or self and self-help genre. The, the case study is so much a part of the self-help genre, right? Yeah. You know, here mm-hmm. are the things that uh, you can do to improve your life and yes. here's a case study. Um, and mm-hmm. so she's bringing that into the narrative as well. You know, so and it's sort of woven, you know, um, uh, 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 it's interwoven really well. So that's why I think I really liked um, Perfect on Paper, and was you know m- my preference was for that because it was yeah. a very rich text uh, in a literary sense, even apart from all the the queer issues. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think
1: it's a very accessible way for young queer people to get information as well, even just mm-hmm. young people in general. Yeah, especially the stuff about the couple bubble, I thought was so lovely. Like it's mm-hmm. a very important lesson for young people to you know, what to look for in a respectful relationship Mm -hmm. and what that sort of means for them. Um, Yeah, it's. I think, like, a lot of young people wouldn't necessarily go out and find a self-help book to read or read about the attachment styles, but if it's embedded into this narrative, which is, like, a fun little enemies to lovers, Mm -hmm. they're going to gain a lot out of that without sort of realising
2: that that's what they're doing.
0: Yes. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. Do you think it's too didactic? Are there too many issues that it's dealing with?
2: Um, well, I think it was kind of interesting to read reviews online mm-hmm. a lot and a lot of reviews. were talking about it being too preachy, mm-hmm. um, having too many, um, yes, too many moments where it's focusing on, yes, teaching and communicating with the actual reader. Um, and I think, you know, in sort of response to that, you really have to consider um, specifically with the queer issues um, how young those sorts of issues are in like popular culture and Mm -hmm. in the mainstream. So, you know, for people like um, Matea and I Mm -hmm. who've been in the online spaces for a really long time um, and we've been interacting with queer content, queer discourse and all of those sorts of things online, um, it can be sort of easy to get caught up in those things, um, whereas you really have to look at it from the perspective of somebody who's young um, who hasn't interacted with those things um, and they're just like they're beginning to emerge Um, And then, you know, I think this book is really helpful. Mm -hmm. So as much as, you know, older people who have lived through these experiences can look at it and be like, no way, it's just, you know, yes, it is preaching and blah, 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 blah. Um, You sort of have to come from a different perspective of thinking like, no, this is really useful. Um, And I think, like you were saying, um, all of the issues are really interwoven into the narrative. So it's not like, you know, there's not just like a sudden it's not out of place. I guess is what I'm saying. They're not out of place. They're not out of order. They're not just thrown in. Um, you know, they're worked into the actual story itself. So I think, I think, I think it did a really good job mm-hmm. actually of doing that. As much mm-hmm. as people would call it preachy, you know, right. like I said, you have to understand. Some people haven't um, interacted with these issues before. Haven't even thought about certain things. Um, so it's it's yeah. really useful. in I that Have way. to think about who the intended audience is. I guess. Yes. Yeah, and I think.
1: In terms of characterization, it's woven in pretty well because you do have Darcy who is very much that sort of type A personality and she's got a genuine, like, genuine interest in this, so it's sort of part of the plot in a way that I think yeah. is authentic. Mm-hmm. And even if it does come off preachy, it's because we're, like, in our 20s. Yes. We're in our 20s. And I think, I think that is a problem with the genre. There are a lot of older queer people who didn't have that representation growing up who are now reading them at like their age now who might think it's a little bit simplistic or preachy or cheesy, yeah. but at the end of the day, they're not the intended. They can get a lot out of those books, but they're not the intended audience. It is like why, you know, typically mm-hmm. for younger mm-hmm. people who mm-hmm. didn't have those experiences and mm-hmm. haven't had the same sort of access that maybe we had to find.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I think also the point that it's um it's also intended from people for, for readers outside of the community to understand. Yeah, exactly. It's really yeah. important. I think
1: reading perfect on paper if you aren't quit would be a really yes insightful sort of look into that. Um, especially the way it's so normative. Mm-hmm. Like guess- this again I think we just keep looking for the negatives, but (laughs) even with Darcy's sister who's trans, Ainsley, Mm -hmm. we kept waiting for somebody to say something mean to her, which is awful, but it's just so embedded that in, like, literature and any representations, especially of trans people, Mm -hmm. that there is that negative aspect. And it was just nice that it wasn't completely ignored. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not a complete utopia where nothing ever goes wrong. She talks about how, like, clothes aren't really made to fit her and Mm -hmm. she has to, like, worry about her hormones and things like that. But it's done in a way that it's not... Just a constant reminder of like how hard things can be like it's mm-hmm. a sort of yeah of what it should sort of look like to mm-hmm. be queer.
0: Yes. Yes. And again, you know, I mean, uh, uh, coming to genre expectations. Yeah. (laughs) So I didn't really because I expected I guess I expected, um, you know, um, emotional justice (laughs) for the characters. Um, Yeah. And um, and but but what I did really like about it was the fact that um, that Gonzalez made you know, if the romance is about healing, yeah, um, you know, it is the queer characters who are bringing a lot of healing um, to each other, yeah. right? And Darcy herself um, is an agent of healing of other people's relationships. So <laughs> yeah. I really, really liked that about it. Mm-hmm. You know, she was not somebody um, who had to be saved Right, that she herself, um, she has so much um, agency. I think, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. she's in the position where, okay, you know, she's here, she's queer, she is strong, yeah. and she, uh, you know, she can help, right? Yeah. And she mm-hmm. wants to, um, and she is successful in it um, as well. So I, I, I just love the representation yeah. of her. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I think uh, you know. W- w- um, Well, let's start to wrap up but you know you had both mentioned that if you had read this (laughs) earlier as kids it would have been really different right (laughs) yeah Um, so maybe you want to comment on that and then um, and then comment about what you'd like to see happening um, in queer YA romance um, in future
1: yeah I think these sort of like newer books like are very healing Um, reading them it just it it feels nice knowing younger queer like kids have Mm -hmm. access to these like that's the sort of first level and also it does yeah I think I was saying I have read a lot of queer YA even though I'm probably not the target audience anymore because like (laughs) there's just something so lovely about it and it's something that was missing for so long um and I think seeing young queer people happy is just yeah like it does heal you and it does feel like really validating and lovely um I think, yeah, like there's something really powerful and revolutionary about a happy ending in a text. Um, Even if for us, because we've grown up on fan fiction and things like that, it was, that was like our (laughs) expectation. That was our sort of um, justice there. But seeing it legitimised is a really great thing and I think it's only going to get better and better um, as these novels get more and more popular. Um, I do think that is probably maybe a little bit too heavy of a focus on gay men or gay boys in these Mm -hmm. sort of novels, and there is still a great underrepresentation of um, queer women and trans people um, and, like, all the other sort of sexualities on that spectrum. I think it would be nice to see those get the same sort of popularity and notoriety as these sort of male-centric books, Mm -hmm. but I think that just sort of comes with time once you sort of break into that genre and... Publishers could like money talks, I guess. If you can see how popular this drone's becoming, that's going to open yes. up a lot more opportunities, hopefully, for other authors and more
2: diverse authors. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm looking forward to seeing. Yes. Um, yes, in regards to wishing that I had these books as um, you know, as a like a preteen, as a young mm. teenager, um, like I kind of I was Darcy. I was really um, adamant even before, yes, even before I knew I was queer. Just like a really good ally. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right. That's sort of the experience I was living. I was so adamant. I was the only person like in my school that I ever interacted with who was, you know, this is before um, there was marriage equality. I was the only person sort of advocating for that. Um, If people were using um, slurs or anything like that, I would call them up. So, you know, like I was that kid. I kind of was... (laughs) yes I was the Darcy um almost but you know so like for me to have seen that experience in a book would have been really it would have been really cool (laughs) you know um, and to be like yeah look there are other people doing the same sorts of things there are people going through the same sorts of issues um and that's that is yes why I agree with Taylor. I think we need a lot more diversity and I think it will be cunning um, but yes there is a huge focus on yeah, gay male relationships um, a lot of white gay yes, male relationships exactly um, and I've said it before like myself personally I think I've only read maybe one um, queer way novel focused on like two female protagonists mm-hmm. um, or maybe I don't know if I've even read one you know um, so it's quite hard to sort of even come across those stories um, in bookstores you have to really seek them out yourself Um, so to get the different levels of representation um, I do think yes I do think it's coming um, but I think we still need to see more of it coming quicker (laughs) I think we need you know I think we need it now I think we need Mm -hmm. to be able to read you know a much larger range of stories um, than are available at the moment um, because, yeah, the majority of queer way novels that I've actually read have been focused on, um, yes, just two men or two boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's really um, brilliant ones out there. It's just they don't. Yes, it's not they haven't received the same sort of cult following. Yes.
1: Um, like Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe's brilliant book. But mm-hmm. um, I think she she has like a blog post and she was basically saying as she was pitching it, she received a lot of pushback even from queer publishers because... Mm-hmm there wasn't as much of a market for yes. like, queer women in that space. So
2: mm.
1: hopefully mm-hmm. that changes. <laughs> yes. I want yep. more content. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. So
0: there are yeah. any queer um, writers out there, you know, more <laughs> This is a call out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, you know, let's wrap this up. This is from me, Shuming Tio, Tia Miller and Courtney Boulay. Uh, thanks very much. We're all going to go off and live happily ever after. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and do tune into the next episode of From the Lighthouse.